we have to pay attention to the past. We have to learn from it. We don't have to accept everything about it. It's fine to approach the 50s critically, but be open-minded. It's far more interesting, far more challenging, far more complex than historical memory has allowed it to be. Thank you for listening to Vanguard of Hollywood. I'm Shannon Allen. Today, I'm excited to introduce, for a second time, film historian Foster Hirsch. Foster is a professor of film at Brooklyn College and the author of 16 books on film and theater. As one of the foremost interviewers, Foster has conducted countless interviews with such classic Hollywood luminaries as Susan Conner, Joan Evans, Carol Baker, Don Murray, Julie Harris, and Tab Hunter. Foster's latest book, Hollywood and the Movies of the 50s, The Collapse of the Studio System, The Thrill of Cinerama, and The Invasion of the Ultimate Body Snatcher, Television, covers the beginning of the end of the studio era and the films, technologies, and people who made the 50s arguably the most impressive decade of film. Foster, thank you for joining me today. You're all the way in New York. Good to be here with you. Yeah. Well, what inspired you to write the book? Why Why the 50s in particular? 50s in particular, I think, for two reasons. Shannon, first, that was my decade of growing up at the movies. I was a kid in the 50s, so I started out very young, and then I got a little older by the end of the decade. So it was sort of my coming of age in the real world, but in movie going as well. So I have a sentimental attachment to that period because I think we all have a, a sentimental attachment, attachment to the period of when we first started going to the movies. But a second uh, reason for writing the book was I feel the 50s have been disdained and stereotyped. And I uh, I read so much about how bland and, and awful the 50s were and that it was the, the most the least interesting decade and i wanted to defend my decade that's far more interesting far more challenging far more complex than historical memory has allowed it to be all the interviewers and, and historians talk about the excitement of the 60s and i don't deny that but the 60s became the 60s because the 50s were the 50s there's a continuity the seeds of the 60s were planted in the 50s. Do I sound defensive? Yes. Am I defensive? Yes. Well, you have a right to be because I, I agree. This uh, the stereotype of 50s America and, and the films produce as stale isn't true. And your book more than proves that. You start by introducing the moguls of, of all the studios, uh, the moguls and the key players in the industry. Usually when we read about a film or a star, these guys are the side players. They don't really take a, a, a central role in a lot of the stories that, that are usually told. So that was really interesting for me to just see the background of, uh, you know, Louis B. Mayer, Dory Sherry. Was there a mogul who particularly impressed you? Yes, I can answer that definitively. I think the best mogul of the era and arguably the best mogul in Hollywood history was Daryl F. Zanuck, who saved the industry with the introduction of CinemaScope. 
if that widescreen process had not been widely adopted by other studios, because Fox sold it to all the studios except Paramount, who insisted on Vista Vision, which didn't last, he rescued the industry from a, a very bad slide. The studio, the studios never recovered the audience level that they'd had during the war years. Television did introduce a real damage to the number of people who went to the movies on a weekly basis, but the industry survived. Thanks in large part to Daryl Zanuck, who was a brilliant executive who had more ideas about how to make movies and tell stories than any other executive. And then at the height of his power in 1956, he left. So I was interested in that departure, the hero of the moment, the man who saved Hollywood, he leaves, and then they bring him back after Fox goes into his tailspin in the early 60s. So it's an extraordinary story with a second act. Yeah. I found him a fascinating figure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. And like you said, the the savior of, of Hollywood and the introduction of CinemaScope, which actually segues into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So you mentioned that in your book, at the core, the founders of Hollywood were traditionalists who resisted uh, and resented innovation. They didn't want to alter the system substantially, but they were willing to try new technologies. And Reluctantly. Reluctantly. Yes, yes. They did so as a survival strategy. Had it been up to them, they would have continued doing making movies the way they always had in the same format, the boxy academy ratio. They didn't want to experiment. They felt they had to, to survive. Yeah. And you, as a, as a movie goer during the fifties, what I love about the section of the book is that you have personal experience with these three technologies, Cinerama, 3D and CinemaScope. These were all things that you as a theater goer got to see as they were being rolled out. I saw the first, 3D film, Born a Devil, during its opening world premiere engagement at the Paramount Downtown Theater in Los Angeles. I was there for, I think, the the second week of This is Cinerama at the Warner Hollywood. I went to Grauman's Chinese to see The Rogue on the first Saturday matinee. These are vivid memories. How lucky I was in my timing. And I love all three technologies. And again, I'm defensive there because 3D has been dismissed and they revive it and it doesn't do well again, and they revive it and it doesn't do well. I love 3D if it's properly used. It enhances the image, it's visual, visually exciting. It, it can enhance the drama as well. I love widescreen. I think it's misused today, but that's another subject. But when it's properly used, widescreen filmmaking is terrifically exciting. So I, 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 I write as an advocate of these three Technologies. Now, Cinerama is no longer. Cinerama was a huge curved screen that, and if you sat in front of it, you, your eye was filled with the image. It covered peripheral vision, so you felt engulfed by the image. There is no theater in the world that can show Cinerama, the original Cinerama. So people have to take my word for it. It can't be seen as it was seen when it was introduced in 52-53. It was extraordinary. So Cinerama, as we mentioned, it's one of these three technologies. The studios don't end up adopting it, though. But 3D, 3D, you know, television comes and it's taking people away from the movies. But they thought for a bit that 3D was going to be the thing that saved Hollywood just for a short time. 
for a short time, they thought 3D is the answer. It will attract people away from their, their dens in their living rooms because you can't get 3D on TV. For a very short period, they thought of it as the savior of the industry. However, the, the technology did not get good reviews by and large, and the films that were released in 3D were considered at the time to be artistically second rate, as if the studios weren't putting their best foot forward. When you look back on it now, and I do try to correct that, there are some very good films made in 3D and some good directors who worked in 3D. Hitchcock, Dial M for Murder. Yes. That's a terrific 3D film. Yes, I did not know. I learned that in your book. So Dial M for Murder, Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder, you actually saw in 3D. But it came at the end of the cycle and it was not released everywhere in 3D. Some theaters showed it in a 2D version. But if you've seen only the 2D dial M, you've not seen the film. Well, I can imagine, you know, the the uh, the iconic, you know, the scene everyone thinks of when when Grace Kelly is fighting for her life and she's reaching for those scissors. I, how cool would that be to see her hand protruding from the screen? Just the 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 drama and suspense of that moment would be I can't even imagine how enhanced. It, it really enhances the moment, as you, just as you say, but the entire film is conceived with 3D in mind. So every shot, is every image has that charge of emergence and depth. Hitchcock was a master. He used 3D because he wanted to experiment, and it's a beautiful experiment. Unfortunately, it came late in the cycle, and by the time it was released in the spring of 54, Hollywood had given up on 3D. I love how uh, you mentioned in your book, too, how certain films like Kiss Me, Kate, a musical that I've, I've loved for a very long time, um, you mentioned now that was that was released in 3D. And initially, the ads for it are really touting the 3D uh, aspect. They're saying, oh, it'll, it's just like you're seeing it on Broadway. Then a couple of weeks later, the ads come out again and they've changed their focus. They're saying, now see it without special glasses, see the 2D version. Do you think that that was uh, indicative of when they when Hollywood realized, okay, 3D is not going to be the thing that gets people back to the theaters? MGM, which at the time was run by Dory Sherry, who was a full-time hater of all the new technologies, he hated 3D. So if he saw that the grosses weren't doing great, he would convert the, the presentation from 3D to 2D. And the, the, the common word over the years has been that the 2D Kiss Me Kate outperformed the 3D, but I believe that's not accurate. But MGM didn't want to promote the 3D because Doris Sherry did not want to continue with 3D. Wasn't a fan. If you've seen Kiss Me Kate only flat, you have not seen Kiss Me Kate. It, yeah. it is great in 3D. Oh, I would love I feel it's, to. I, I, I'm, I'm so disappointed that they gave up so soon. They, they made some indifferent films. They made some bottom-of-the-barrel stories that wouldn't have been good flat 3D cinemascope. It didn't matter. But they were beginning to make some serious films in 3D, and then commercially they thought, this isn't working. I just feel they abandoned ship too quickly. And as you know, 3D's come back in yeah. different cycles at different periods, but it never seems to survive. 
Yeah. And do you think, is that purely the studios, you know, not liking it for whatever reason, it, it's uh, more difficult to, to film or is yes. that the audience? Many viewers to this day do not like wearing glasses. It, it's a nuisance. Some people claim to get headaches from 3D. They don't like the process. I know contemporary audiences don't like the surcharge for 3D. They charge more. So in, in for those objections, it continues not to be really successful and broadly adapted. I'm a huge fan of 3D. Should every film be made in 3D? I wouldn't go that far, but I would like to see a lot of films in 3D, sure. And I love 3D and widescreen as a combination. So 3D in the 50s does end up working. Cinemascope ends up being the one that sticks. Why Why was it Cinemascope? Why Cinemascope instead of 3D or Cinerama? What, what made that different? Cinemascope was a more manageable technology. Cinerama, very expensive to install and so large that it was not really a narrative or storytelling medium. So with Cinemascope, you got the, the, the broadened perspective, you know, the, the, the screen, width of the screen vastly expanded, but it was not expensive to install. Theaters could accommodate it with just a little bit of reconfiguring, and it gave audiences something new without being overwhelming or being overly technology-focused. And nobody complained about getting headaches. People liked the widest <laughs> no <glasses>. remember. <laughs> no glasses. Um, you didn't have to sit and there was a, a fiction that you had to sit exactly a certain exact place in the theater to get the effect of 3D. Not really true. But I remember seeing the robe at Grumman's Chinese. And when the curtain opened and the small screen expanded to the large screen, it was thrilling in a way that contemporary audiences will never have a chance to experience because we hadn't seen that before. And it was seeing film in an entirely new frame and format. And ironically, The Robe is the film that saved the industry. And as you know, I'm doing series around the country. Nobody wants to program it. No one I wants to play The Robe? any programmer to show The Robe. Why do you think that is? It's, well, well, because it's a biblical epic. It's a Christian, a story of early Christianity. And in the 50s, early 50s, when this was a much more overtly Christian or religious country. That was a perfectly logical choice for a blockbuster. Not today. Biblical epics have been out of fashion for decades. Christian epics even more so. It's considered, you know, in terms of theme, really old hat yesteryear. Yeah. I think it's a very fine film, and it's a revolutionary film, beautifully shot. They were pioneers. There were no models. They were they were inventing. Henry Coster, the director, was a pioneer in widescreen filmmaking. It's an extremely important film. Nobody wants to show it because the, the subject matter seems so yesterday, so so out of touch with the current. Well, I just watched it this last week again because 
I just learned so much about it from your book. Well, and you I saw wanted, the robe. You watched the robe? I have seen the robe, yes. And most okay. recently, I watched it just last week with my family. We all loved it. My daughter was was just entranced too. And one of the best things was was really seeing how well the film lends itself to the cinemascope um, widescreen. I mean, of course- The subject matter and the technology, just as you say, were beautifully aligned one with the other. It was a very smart choice. That was Daryl Zanuck. He said, this is our presentation film. And for 1953, he was right. For 2023, disaster. But we're talking about 70 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think The Robe and then it was closely followed by How to Marry a Millionaire. Do you think that these two films being the uh, the first two Cinemascope productions, do you think that had a lot to do with the success of Cinemascope? Absolutely. And look how smart the choice is in that Zanuck. You start with a biblical epic, which has a certain grandeur and dignity. And then you show that Cinemascope is versatile. And so you have a popular romantic comedy. Yeah. So Cinemascope was not just for the big epic. It could be for a contemporary comedy of manners. Yeah. And, and How to Marry a Millionaire is perfectly entertaining. Uh, it, you know, it's a minor film. We would not be talking about it, except that it has its place in history. Yeah. Daryl Zanuck was his um, promotion of it because he did a lot of work getting the studios on board. Was that also instrumental in Cinemascope's ultimate success? If Cinemascope was going to survive, Zanuck and his partner in New York, Spiroscuros, had to convince the other studios to take it on. All of the studios agreed to, save for Paramount, stubbornly resisting Cinemascope and using their own widescreen process, VistaVision, which lasted only until 1960-61. But all the other studios took on Cinemascope. Fox at the time was married to Cinemascope, as they put it, and all their product was in Cinemascope. MGM took taking Cinemascope up, and, and Warner Brothers made only some pictures in scope. But in the 50s, Fox was totally scope. The other studios chose the, the projects to do widescreen. They had to convince the other studios. They did, and they succeeded. Yeah, and it saved Fox and it saved Hollywood. It did. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, so we we have these new technologies that that are being adopted, um, hoping to get people back to the movies and away from television. Another thing that you mentioned in the book was the 50s is one of the first eras where there's a new emphasis on um on a on different markets different audiences for the first time films were created specifically for teenagers um it wasn't just a, a this one film entertains the whole family and that had been the model yeah. one film entertains the whole family that model was not going to work in the post-war period demographics had changed and tastes had changed and all of a sudden there was a teenage audience. People think, well, the teenagers were invented by the 50s. They'd always existed, of course, but they became a specific audience only in the 50s. With the influence of films like, and the impact of these films can't be overstated, The Wild One with Marlon Brando, Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean, and Blackboard Jungle. 
they were three different films about teenage life or they weren't really played by teenagers. They were played by actors in their 20s, but young people, young people. And American International, founded in 56, saw that there was a market for films aimed specifically at teenagers and not at their parents. That was something new. Yeah, and it, it coincides uh, with Elvis Presley's arrival on the music scene. I mean, it's no coincidence it that he comes over and uh, to to film and becomes a film star as well. And I have to I have to ask you. So you write in your book about Jailhouse Rock, and you say that in in this his best film, he remains a dull actor who's a star only when he sings. I think he's a great singer. I think he is so boring as an actor and so boring. At, uh, his films are so dull. You can say, oh, well, this one's better than that one. I think they're all bad, frankly. He doesn't interest me. I, I under I underwrite about Elvis. I'm guilty. I, I should have written more. But your point is well taken that rock music, rock music comes in the 50s, mid 50s. And then it's the explosion of the youthful market and, and the teen market. It's all interconnected. It's a new kind of music that was introduced and a new buyer and a new audience. And movies accommodate them. But Elvis was, of course, a sensation as a singer. But I don't get him as an actor. So moving on to a section of the book that I just, you covered so objectively and and this is a hard subject to cover objectively. I feel like um, so often we just hear one side or the other, and that is the blacklist. The 1950s is the era of the blacklist and the House on American Activities Committee. Now, do you feel like the blacklist could have been avoided? Was this something that Hollywood could have avoided, or was it inevitable that actors and entertainers would be blacklisted? First, thank you for noting that I, I really did try to be even-handed on this and open-minded, and, and I'm pleased to say that, the, that, that reviews have pointed that out, that, that I'm objective and even-handed, that I don't take one particular hard line, politically speaking. I thought I was going to get in a lot of trouble for that, but uh, readers and reviewers seem to have appreciated that I'm trying to be as even-handed as possible. Could the blacklist have been avoided? Yes. And I talk about the signing of the Waldorf Statement in November at the Waldorf Astoria, which was the beginning of the blacklist. Right. But the moguls, yes, if they stood up on that day and said, we will not agree to a blacklist in our industry, that might have been avoided. But they didn't. They caved in. They were scared for any number of reasons, which I, I outline in the book. In that moment, could history have been changed? Yes, but it would have taken enormous courage and it would have taken a kind of fearlessness that the moguls didn't have. They themselves felt under attack. And here I have to get into areas of, of religion. Most of the moguls were Jewish. Hollywood was historically a Jewish industry. It was founded by Jewish men, by and large. The feeling about communism was that it was heavily Jewish. The Mughals were not communists. They were extremely Republican, almost every one of them, or apolitical. 
but they were worried that if they stood up and defended communists, they would be victims of anti-Semitism. It was fear. They were not religiously observant. They were assimilated Jewish people, and they had worked so hard. They were immigrants from Eastern Europe. They had worked so hard to assimilate themselves into the American brain. They thought of themselves first as Americans. And here they thought everything was going to be taken away from them because they would be branded as fellow travelers, as Jewish fellow travelers. They were afraid that Wall Street would pull money. They were afraid of Washington. Washington was a bigger playing field than Hollywood. Louis B. Mayer was king of the realm at MGM, but when he met presidents, he would bow and scrape because they were, they occupied a larger territory. So there were economic, political, psychological, emotional reasons for them to say, okay, we'll go along with the, with the Committee on Un-American Activities and outlaw the employment of communists. Were there communists in Hollywood? Yes, there were. Did any of them want to overthrow this country? There's no evidence of that whatsoever. They had political opinions that were inconvenient. I don't understand how they could have. These were rich people. Why were they interested in communism? I don't get it. And it's been proven that they were on the wrong side of history. They were supporting Stalin. They were supporting a corrupt government. That doesn't mean you should be blacklisted because you have stupid political ideas. We'd be blacklisting almost everybody today. Yes. People are entitled to be wrong about politics. That's part of our system. Yeah, You don't banish them or, or, or cancel them right. if, if they have opinions you don't agree with. They're entitled to their opinions. The smartest guy politically in Hollywood at the time was a screenwriter named Philip Dunn, who was anything but communist. He was a liberal anti-communist. He said, my communist friends have a right to their opinion. They are wrong in their opinion. They are right to be wrong. They have, that, they have the freedom to be wrong. And it's my right and privilege as an American to defend their right to think what they will. I thought that made a lot of sense. Yeah, very well said. He thought the richer Hollywood people who were so-called fellow travelers and communists were damn fools, but he thought they had a right to be wrong. He defended them in their rights. On the subject of the blacklist, many people testified and became friendly witnesses, um, but they, you know, they were no longer blacklisted per se after that, but they still, it's not like things magically got better. A lot of them were still shunned and mistreated or looked at as rats. For the rest of their lives. Yeah. When, when Leah Kazan, the most famous of the friendly witnesses, got his honorary Academy Award at the age of 94, at the ceremonies, a number of people sat on their hands. They would not yeah. applaud him. And others stood up to cheer him. Wow. Um, I, 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 reviewers have said that I was very even-handed about Kazan. Yeah. I wish he hadn't been a friendly witness, but what people don't understand, and, I, and my, my research proves it absolutely, is Kazan did not reveal any names the committee did not already have. Yeah. The committee had all the names, period. They knew. So asking people to be a friendly witness was just a formalized ritual to degrade and humiliate them. 
the villains in this, the villains are the committee. The villains are not the communists or the ex-communists or the fellow travelers or the even the friendly witnesses, cowardly as they may have been. But I also try to put myself in the position of a friendly witness. We like to think we would be heroic and stalwart under fire like that. How do we know unless we're there? Yeah. How do we know how we would respond? Our livelihood depends on it. Our families depend on our, our income. You're giving up names that they already had. Right. You're not betraying anyone. I don't know how people would respond. It's easy to sit back and say, of course, I would have stood on my principles. One likes to think so, but the committee had no right to ask that question. No right to ask who else was there. No right. They are the culprits. Yeah. Now, on the waterfront, very famous, very well-respected film. Do you think this was Kazan's way of kind of explaining what he did? Because the the film revolves around Marlon Brando, Terry. Is he going to say what he knows or is he not? Is he, is he going to testify? Right. Is he going to be a witness in court? Yeah. And he is. And it's the right thing to do. Of course, the film is a kind of apology for Kazan's friendly witness. And it was written by Bud Schulberg, who was also a friendly witness. Of course, the film is a metaphor, not directly, because the the uh, waterfront union that they, the corrupt union that they testify against, they're not communists. So it's not about communism at all. Right. But it's about testifying to something you know to be wrong, not to be evil. It's about the importance of testimony. It's about the importance of naming names in, in a sense. Yes, the film is a an explanation. Kazan and Schulberg sometimes like to deny it. I think they were being disingenuous. I think it is an attempt to explain their behavior and to validate, to ratify the importance of open testimony. Yeah. Sometimes speaking up and saying what you know is the right thing to do, as it is in On the Waterfront. But of course, Kazan and, and Schulberg got the last word and the last laugh because their film's one of the greatest ever made in America. My, in my opinion, the single finest film of the 50s. And Brando, Brando's is the greatest performance I've ever seen in a movie. And also believing that to be the case is Kazan himself. He said, if, I, if there is a finer performance by a, an actor in an American film, he did not know of it. What a compliment. Yeah. Marlon Brando. The 50s is, is his decade. The, the roles, the versatility of his roles, it's amazing. It's extraordinary. Extraordinary. When you think he, he's in Streetcar Named Desire, explosive. When he did it on the stage in 1947, it was an explosion. It was, it was volcanic. And then he recreates it in the movie. And then he does On the Waterfront. And then he does The Wild One. Before that, but Shakespeare, he's Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, beautifully spoken. Beautiful Shakespearean dialogue, beautifully delivered. And what people don't remember, they don't want to remember, they think it's ridiculous. He's very good as Napoleon and Desiree 
compare his Napoleon to the disastrous Joaquin before Joaquin Phoenix performance in, in the current multi-million dollar failure, Napoleon. Compare Joaquin Phoenix to Marlon Brando. I rest my case. <laughs> so do you, do you think, is it an overstatement to say that he, he was a genius? He was a genius. Kazan, the greatest director of actors in American theater and film, said exactly that. Yeah. He was a genius. Yeah. He was a genius. In my opinion, the greatest actor in American films. And the one who's had the greatest influence. So many actors are, are, are imitating him, whether they even know it or not. They're in the tradition started by Marlon Brando. But it was so much great acting. 50s. James Dean, Montgomery Clift, wonderful actors in the new method style. Now, we've talked about Marlon Brando, and you mentioned the uh, kind of the, the old school actors in your book, too, that had a good run in the 50s as well. One of them is Jimmy Stewart. And I found this quote about Jimmy from Cary Grant. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Carrie's analysis of Jimmy. So quoting Cary Grant here, quote, Jimmy had the same effect on pictures that Marlon Brando had some years later. Jimmy had the ability to talk naturally. He knew that in conversation, people often do interrupt each other and that it's not always easy to get a thought out. It took a while for the sound men to get used to him, but he had an enormous impact. And then some years later, Marlon came out and did the same thing. But what people forget is that Jimmy did it first, unquote. What do you think about that? That's a very good, that's a very good statement. Um, it's not that Marlon Brando was doing something that had never been done before. In his own ways, Jimmy Stewart had, had done it. Jimmy Stewart didn't have the same tumultuous inner life that Brando projected. He didn't have the same uh, volcanic sexuality. Brando went deeper, but was Jimmy Stewart extremely natural in the movies? Of course he was. Did he talk the way people do in the real world? As you say, people interrupt each other. They don't complete a sentence. They stumble over their words. He did all of that. And Brando got a lot of credit for doing that. No, he wasn't the first. A natural movie actor like Jimmy Stewart. And sometimes Spencer Tracy could do the same thing. Yeah. They just seemed as if they were talking. Right. Real words in a real situation, which is what actors are, are supposed to be doing. Right. But they did it with without any effort. You could say that Brando's acting was more strenuous mm -hmm. than theirs. I would agree with that. But Brando also touched depths that they couldn't get to. Yeah. Yeah. But there was an explosiveness and, and a, a, a richness of inner life. With Brando, you look at his eyes in any film and you can see thought behind the eyes. You can see, you can feel the character's inner monologue. He's thinking before he speaks and as he speaks. But it, is, it isn't that there was no precedent. There wasn't. I, that's a very intelligent comment from Cary Grant. Yeah, it was a parallel that I'd never really thought about before. You you don't really put Marlon Brando and Jimmy Stewart together in a <laughs> in the same acting school. <laughs> but but there's a connection. There is. Yeah. There's a continuity. Yeah, there certainly is. Yeah. So another genre of film from really that was at the end of its time in the 50s was the melodrama. 
And imitation of life is just the ultimate example of the perfect melodrama. And you've had the chance to interview Juanita Moore and Susan Coner about this film. When they were filming it, did they know what a masterpiece it was? No, absolutely not. In fact, when I first reached out to Susan over 20 years ago and said I wanted to do a screening of a film at the American Film Institute, she was sort of startled. I was the one who, over the years, told her or had an influence on her own thinking about the film. She said, after these many years later, and I look at the film, I see what you're talking about, the mirror shots and reflected surfaces and, and the, the railings and the color design and how space comments on the characters. But she said, you know, when we were making the film, I had to produce all these big emotions. I didn't have time to pay attention to the genius of the director and the cinematographer. But I see it now. So she's come around. I just did an event with her last week at the Egyptian uh, in Los Angeles. She got a huge standing ovation, I'm oh, happy I to bet. say. Her performance in the film hold up beautifully. That is one of my favorite films, and it is kind of the end of the line, the apex of the old school melodrama. It's a climactic version of that kind of filmmaking, which, like the biblical epic, out of fashion for many decades, out of fashion, but people can still appreciate the artistry. And there were plenty of tears at the Egyptian oh, last I week. Oh, I bet. I bet. Plenty of tears, including Susan herself. Wow. When she was on stage, she came up on stage and she got the standing ovation, there were some tears. She was in tears looking at herself from 1959 and being moved. Yeah. by that last scene over her mother's coffin. Yeah. Well, we have truly only scratched the surface here. And this is probably an impossible question I'm about to ask you. If you could choose one film that if you're just saying to someone, hey, the 50s were an amazing period. You should watch this. What would that film be? Well, it's very hard to choose. There's so many great films but I feel the single finest film of the 50s is on the waterfront. It, as you mentioned, it really is an allegory for a contemporary event. It is very much about the blacklist and the congressional investigations. It has a very contemporary feel, but it goes beyond that. And it's really about, it sounds pompous, but it's about the birth of a soul because the Terry Malloy character doesn't understand things at the beginning of the film. By the end, he understands who he is and what he must do. And so it's an, a story of enormous emotional and psychological and moral growth, which is universal, which transcends any one decade or period. The greatest scene of the decade of, of all, the taxicab scene, yeah. when he recognizes who he is and what he must do to claim himself. I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. But yeah. once he makes the decision to testify, he becomes a contender. And so it's, the, it's, it's about this moral growth, which I find incredibly moving, timeless and universal, although rooted in the political specifics of, of the time period. I agree with your choice. Uh, on the Waterfront is 
It is timeless. It's an amazing film, perfectly directed, acted, and uh, it'd be a great recommendation for someone wanting to get a taste of of what the fifties were were really producing. But I hope if they see if they don't know the fifties and they see on the waterfront and they say, "Wow, this is great! I want to see more," then they become immersed in this yes. great decade of filmmaking, which. I know I'm biased, but in my opinion, is the single greatest ten-year period in the history of American movies. In my maybe not so humble opinion, but <laughs> there you have it: the '50s, the greatest time. I can assure you, the present moment is never going to be called that. I would agree. I would agree. I wanted to ask you too, Foster. Today, it's not uncommon for a previous era to be dismissed because the era and the people who lived in it are now being judged by current beliefs and standards. What would you say to a student or a colleague who dismisses the films of the 1950s because they don't check all of the boxes that we have today? And, and, and they do not. And I even talk about that. I said the, the, the films will not fulfill the current identity politics uh, PC orthodoxy. They're not going to satisfy on every realm. But I also say that there's not a necessary connection between PC correctness and artistic achievement. And I think there is the danger of cancel culture and dismissal by young people of history. And what I've tried to do is to show the 50s in all its strengths and its warts. It, you should you should call it out when that when when something's insensitive racially or sexually insensitive the gender politics are not going to get a plus on every film certainly not but you should call it out but don't throw down the house don't cancel the culture because it doesn't satisfy on all the terms and which we now think are, are correct I'd like to see. 50 years, 60, 70 years from now, people looking back at us and saying, what were they thinking of in 2023? What did they think? They thought that was the right opinion to take. Let's have a little modesty and humility here. This is we're look, we're talking about 70 years ago. These guys did really well. Let's let's not focus on what they did wrong. Let's focus on all they got right. Yeah. We have to pay attention to the past. We have to learn from it. We don't have to accept everything about it. It's fine to approach the 50s critically, but be open-minded. Be as even-handed as you can be. So much today is so ideologically strict and talk about conformity. If you don't conform to a certain set of beliefs, you're finished. You can be you doxxed or canceled. It's, it's scary. Let's be more open-minded and not so ideologically riven and divided among, amongst ourselves. You'd think we weren't all Americans the way we carry on. Yeah, well said. To close, I want to quote you. I, I loved this. This is from your epilogue in the book. You say that, quote, more great films were released in the 50s than in any other 10-year cycle in the history of American movies. For all the ways in which it offends... The film culture of the 1950s was, in retrospect, and remains a vibrant trove of movies to learn from, argue with, savor, and enjoy, unquote. Your book, cover to cover, 
you prove that these films are something to to treasure, to to argue with, to savor and enjoy. So Hollywood and the movies of the 50s. Foster, where can listeners buy a copy? Get it on Amazon and you can get it on bookstores everywhere. My good friend Jeff at Larry Edmonds in Hollywood um, has plenty of copies signed by me and by celebrity guests who were with me at, a, at an event I did a few weeks ago. Uh, Jeff deserves lots of support. He's a great bookseller. So I would say go to Larry Edmonds and ask for a signed copy of, of this book. And again, just the most comprehensive, entertaining, objective book on the era. Thank you for writing it. I learned so much. And anyone who's a classic Hollywood fan, anyone who just wants a better uh, knowledge and feel for the 50s needs to read your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks. Well, and thank you for being with me here today, Foster. As always, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.